0: How do you know if you really have God's life in you? Your relationship to sin changes. You walk in the light, finding God's forgiveness through Jesus, confessing your sins, and striving not to sin anymore. We saw this last week. John now gets into the second test that he's going to lay out in his book, which is that you might claim, I have come to know God. Or you might say, I abide in Jesus. How can we test those claims which are really the same? the second test of true salvation of assurance of faith is to ask yourself do i keep god's commandments verse three or to ask it a different way do i walk in the way that jesus walked verse six the commandment john has in mind is not a specific one like don't lie instead he refers generally to the summary of god's commandments about how we relate to people Here's the test. Do I love or hate my brother? Loving your brother verifies your claim of obedient faith. Loving your brother verifies your claim of obedient faith. We see from the first few verses here that if you know God and abide in Him, you keep His commands. If you know God and abide in Him, you keep His commands. Keeping His commands shows that you know God. His love is perfected in the one who keeps His commands. We see this in verse 3. We have come to know Him. And verse 5. In Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. The one who keeps His word. We see that God's life is lived out in the one who abides in Him. It says in um, verses 5-6, to By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. And so keeping his commands shows that you do in fact know God as you have claimed. On the other hand, not keeping his commands shows that you do not know God. If you say, I know God, but don't keep his commands, John says you are a liar and have no truth in you. And these things should be obvious, but John is stating them back and forth and repeating them and stating them in different ways just to make it abundantly clear what it is That uh, we should think. If you don't live out the life of God in your life, we could ask from verse 6 do you really abide in Him? We can claim many things with our mouths, but our lives show what is true. If we say, I know God, I abide in Him, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I'm a member of a church, there's any number of ways that we might make the same basic claim I have a relationship with God. We want people to accept our words, and in fact, we may genuinely believe them to be true with all of our hearts. I know God. But John says we're not to evaluate someone's life, especially our own, based simply on the words that we tell other people. We evaluate the claims of knowing and abiding in God by looking at our lives. Do we keep God's commands? That is the test. Not, how do I feel about God? not how much money have I given to Christian works, not how much do I know about Christianity. It's none of those sorts of things, which is often what people look at when we want to evaluate things. Did you ever get baptized? I mentioned before, people will call the church sporadically and say, hey, I need a baptism certificate because I'm joining a new church. And I don't know if I've ever said this. I usually just say that we don't have one. But maybe I should start saying, if you need a baptism certificate to become a part of another church, if that's the sole requirement, and, and, and maybe this is unfair, because maybe they are involved in ministry, and people know that they have a walk with God, and all those sorts of things, and, and the church just has some rule on the books that says you have to get the baptism certificate. But I think far too often... Churches are like, well, we can't really tell if this person is a Christian. Let's push it off on another church. If they vouched for him in the past, then if we have the document, then we can be like, all right, we're in the clear. And that's not how we should look at this at all. Like if a piece of paper is the sum total of your relationship with God, you don't have a relationship with God. What, is God, what does John mean here by keeping his commands? That's, I think, the important question we need to consider next. Keeping God's commands in this context means loving your brother in verses 7 through 11. Keeping God's commands means here, loving your brother. John probably is thinking about God's commands broadly, but the specific one that we see, which ties into John 13, 34, and 35, was to love your brother. And he starts out by saying an interesting and seemingly contradicting thing. The command to love your brother is both old and new. Let me give you some verses that support this idea. So, loving your brother is a commandment from the beginning. Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, we could argue that it goes back even further to the Garden of Eden, but at the very least, we see it in the law. So, for a very long time, God has commanded His people, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus repeats this in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. John is going to say in chapter 3, this is the message which you have from the beginning, that we should love one another. Chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 2 John verse 5. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Second John is written to the elect lady, and uh, John is addressing her there and saying, "Here's the commandment. It's not a new commandment. It's the one we've had from the beginning to love one another." Galatians five says it this way: the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." 1 Thessalonians four nine. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Hebrews thirteen one. Let love of the brethren continue. 1 Peter to 23 Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. So John says... This is a commandment that you have had from the beginning that has been repeated to you over and over again. And that's clear from the messages of Paul, of the author of Hebrews, of Peter. All of these places are pointing us to the fact that God for a very long time has required of his people, love your neighbor as yourself. So John says, in that respect, this is not a new commandment. This is something that God has said over and over and over again. And I would argue that this is the thing that God has wanted from those who claim to follow him from Genesis to Revelation. So we want to say, well, you know, we talked about this some last week, I believe, in the afternoon. Are we, as Christians, required to follow the law of Moses? including the Ten Commandments. My argument would be no, because they were given specifically to the people of Israel. However, the core of what God expressed in the law of Moses that he gave to the people of Israel is, as Paul says in Galatians, the whole law is fulfilled, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, what's the first and greatest commandment? Love God with all of who you are. The second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul and John, I think, take it a step further and say... If you love your neighbor as yourself, you are also loving God with all of your being. And so the law can be summarized in this one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And to the extent that God is a God who does not change, it's what he wanted from people back in Genesis, it's what he wants from people today, it's what he wants from people from now into eternity. So if we say, what is at the core of what we're supposed to do as Christians? It is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's also a sense, John points out, the loving your neighbor is a new commandment. Verse 8. Matthew 5 says it this way. You have heard, in verses 43 to 48, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus wasn't saying, this is what I taught you, this is what God taught you. He's saying, this is what you have been taught by the rabbis, by those who've interpreted the law of Moses. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. tax collectors, betrayers of their people, Gentiles, people who had no part with Israel. And Jesus says, hey, in the thing that you think you're fulfilling what I want you to do, you're no better than the people that you despise. What's God's actual standard? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if you're going to do that, it means not just love the people who can love you back, it means love your enemies. And so, in the sense of this being a new commandment, Jesus is expanding their understanding of what God had already said, to it's not just love my neighbor and my neighbor is the people that are right around me and the people that I like and the people who can do good stuff for me. Your neighbor is the people that you despise and who despise you, the people who actively do you harm. Those people are your neighbor too. So when God says love your neighbors yourself, he means all of these people, not just the people that we want to narrowly define as our neighbor, and so that we don't have to do it very much. So we see that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Jesus said, after the end, in the context of John 13, "...a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another." I think we should meditate on these verses more often than we do because we have. Um, I was having this discussion, I think, yesterday, the day before, with Sarah. We um, we look at the tra- the trajectory, the direction that different Christian or professing Christian groups have had down through the years. So we could go way back to like. The Reformation, but let's not go quite as far back. Let's go and look at the time period that led to some of us being here today in the United States. The Church of England was a split off of the Catholic Church that kept all of the ungodly practices but put the King of England in charge of it. There were two groups that had responses to what they perceived as errors and were actually errors in the Church of England, a clone, if you will, of the Catholic Church. There was one group that says, we need to purify the church and restore it to biblical realities. People called them Puritans, right? There was another group that says, we're never going to be able to purify it, so we're just going to leave. People called them separatists or pilgrims. Here's the interesting thing that happened uh, as you look at the long-term effect of both of those groups. Both of them failed. And I don't say that to say they, they said nothing that was true, they weren't used by God in some way. I just am saying they felt like the mark that was going to distinguish the church from the world and be pleasing to God is if they could make the church what it meant to what it was meant to be either by purifying the church they were a part of or starting another church that would be pure and holy. That was their goal. In the 1900s. Uh, There were um, men, particularly in the Presbyterian denominations like J. Gresham Machen and a number of others who encountered a similar problem. People had been getting taught principles of evolution for several decades. They had been getting taught principles of higher criticism and questioning the, the accuracy and reliability of scripture, the likelihood of miracles actually having taken place and all of those sorts of things. And that had combined to a situation in which the Presbyterian denomination, among others, found itself at a crisis point. A bunch of people who are in positions of leadership and who are pastoring churches had rejected the gospel. We don't believe the Bible is true. We don't believe Jesus was God. We don't believe there was a virgin birth. We don't believe that God made the world. One by one, they had rejected the core doctrines of Christianity. This was the rise of liberalism or modernism in the church. The response to that was twofold. One group of people decided to stay. Another group of people decided to leave, much as the Puritans and the Pilgrims had done centuries before. Here's what has ended up happening. The people who stayed, what was sometimes called broader evangelicalism, In the United States, have continued to have the same sorts of arguments about is the Bible true? Do we follow what it specifically says? So on and so forth. The people who left have continued to splinter further and further and further till you get these really small groups, and the size is not the test, but if the size exists, because you can't get along with anybody else, the problem is with you, not with everybody else. And that's where a number of these congregations have resulted. The reason that there are a lot of really tiny congregations is sometimes because of the move away from the truth that has happened in various places, and sometimes because in our quest to purify the church, we've gotten to a point where we're suspicious of everybody around us and even of ourselves uh, and we get to a point where it's like, well, probably nobody's going to make it to heaven. Nobody's pleasing to God. So the, the schisms and the divisions that come from that mindset are a problem. The compromise with truth that has happened in different swaths and other groups um, has been a problem. And there's a present-day example of this. The United Methodist Church, which has been trending toward having a split like this for a long time, I was reading an article the other day, they have now lost at least a quarter of their congregations The ones that are remaining are trending very heavily toward denying what the Bible says about a whole bunch of things, human sexuality, the reality of the Bible being true or not, what it even means to be a Christian, does everybody just end up in heaven, you know, all those sorts of things. And the ones that have left are founding a new denomination in the hopes that they won't have the same problem. I can almost guarantee you that sometime in the next 50 to 100 years, There are going to be some people who realize that they were wrong, that stayed in the denomination and turned back to the truth. And there are going to be some that continue to divide the new denomination because that is what has happened historically over and over and over again. So you're like, why in the world are we having a history lesson in the middle of the sermon? What was Jesus' test for whether... people would know that we were his disciples? Was it that we were a pure church without sin, without any error, without any problems? No. His test was, if you have love for one another. And the manner of it was, even as I have loved you. So that's our example. Continue in 1 John. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. John says in 1 John three twenty four, the one who keeps his commandments, abides in him and he in him, We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. 1 John 4.21, This commandment we have from Him, the one who loves God should love his brother also. In what way is it a new commandment? It is a new commandment because we now have Jesus' example and the Spirit's power in a way that was not as clear or as visible as it was in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus. So it is an old command in that it is what God has wanted from the beginning. It is a new command in terms of the example and the resources that we have in order to carry it out in the present moment. And what does it show if we love our brother? Loving your brother shows whether you are in light or darkness. And it's really easy for us to think, what shows if I'm in light or darkness is whether the words that I say are true. right? And it's easy to do that because we want to look at what people say because it's a it's it's easier to evaluate, right? Because we can't see motives, we hear what people say. So if somebody gets up and is getting an interview, like some notable professing Christian leaders have in recent days, and someone asks a direct question and that person gives an evasive answer, then you say, all right, they don't actually believe the truth. And that's the thing that shows they don't belong to God. And I'm not saying that never shows someone who doesn't belong to God, but if we fixate exclusively on the words of a person as opposed to the, the manner of life, then we're not looking at John's test, we're adding our own test, right? Because what does John say the test is, do you have love for one another? Not, do you say the right things, can you express doctrines in an orthodox and acceptable manner? Am I saying we should say things that are lies that contradict scripture? No, but that's not the test that John's looking at here. Loving your brother shows whether you're in light or darkness, verses 8 through uh, 11. He says, the new commandment is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. If Jesus demonstrates love for the brother and you demonstrate love for the brother, the new commandment is being fulfilled in the life of Jesus and in the life of you. And that is evidence that the darkness is passing away of sin and rejection of God and all those sorts of things. We already saw that same imagery earlier in chapter 1. God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's life, that's the light. Sin and death and destruction and going our own way, that's the darkness. The darkness is passing away if we are walking and living in the way that Jesus lived, which was to show sacrificial love for those around him. If you say, John continues, you're in the light, that you, we could say this is the same as knowing God, abiding in God, but you hate your brother, the reality is that you're not in the light, you're in darkness. You don't know God, and you're not abiding in God, you're lying to yourself and those around you. And ultimately, as we saw earlier in chapters 1 and 2, you're calling God a liar because it's very clear that your life doesn't match up with what you're professing to be true. He continues and says, Loving your brother means abiding in the light, which means no cause for stumbling, verse 10, because the light guides you from stumbling and drives out the darkness. That's what verse 8 was saying. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. On the other hand, hating your brother means you're abiding in darkness, which means you're walking in darkness, which means you're full of sin and you have no direction from God in the right way because... The darkness of sin is blinding you to God's way. That's what he says in verse 11. So in order to further clarify the test of do you keep God's commands, John shows that he means in these verses, do you love your brother? And this is really important because it's possible to keep some of God's commands while missing the main point of them, to make a disconnect between, well, I would never lie, but I'm not going to show love to the people around me. Let me illustrate it this way. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 43, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So if you go in your kitchen and you open your spice cabinet and you say, I'm going to take an eighth and an ounce of this spice and I'm going to sell it and the three cents I get from it, Maybe it's more than that because spices are expensive. The 10 cents I get from it, I'm going to give that to the church. But I see my elderly neighbor next door struggling to carry a piece of furniture out to the curb because she's throwing it away. And I say, I don't have to help her because I have given my 10 cents to the church. You've missed the whole point of God's law. Because God's law is, yes, should you recognize that ultimately, and we see this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 expanded from the Pharisees' very narrow vision of it, instead of saying, this fragment of the spices in my cabinet belongs to God, we should say it all belongs to God, so um, I should be willing to use it in service to others, make a meal for someone, something like that. I should do that, but I should not say, well, because I made a meal for the potluck, I don't have to do anything else the rest of the week. Do we recognize that following the things that people see as far as God's command, like I don't lie or cheat or steal or commit adultery or whatever else, I don't do any of those things, that's only part of what God expects. Not doing bad isn't good enough. God commands us to positively do what is right. And positively do what is right is the love your neighbor as yourself. I suppose we can make an argument that it's loving your neighbor as yourself to not kill your neighbor. That's a really low bar to set, right? What God wants us to do is actively good for our neighbor. Right? And even in a sacrificial way. So... Let's say you have five steaks and you're a family of four. And you're like, well, if I don't invite my neighbor over, there's extra and there's more for me. Are you going to invite your neighbor over? Or conversely, there's only four and you're like, if I invite my neighbor over, I may not get any at all. That's going more toward the idea of sacrifice, especially for those of you who enjoy a meal like that. Are you willing to do that? Or are like, nope, because I've done this thing for God this week, I don't have to do this. And I'm not saying you have to give away all of your stuff and never enjoy anything in life. But that's not where, at least I know my heart, has typically been in the past. It's not, well... I'm so good at giving away and being generous and all of these sorts of things um, that I just really don't have any room to improve in that. What we tend toward is, as Americans, in particular, compared to the rest of the world, and as people who go to churches who, for the most part, do not regularly experience hunger or difficulty... Like our hunger or difficulty is we can't afford to eat a ton of meat right now, so we're going to eat more like beans and rice and things like that that will fill us up and, and less like steak and bacon and whatever else that we might prefer to eat. But we're not starving, right? And it's not just about food, right? But it is a lot of times about food, right? Um, it's not just about money, but it is a lot of times about money. It's not just about stuff, but it is a lot of times about stuff. We, um, we want to just say, I'm not doing anything bad, and stop there. And Jesus says, if you don't actively do something good, I mean, the very definition of fellowship that we were talking about last week, we talked about it being an aspect of sharing. There's a verse in Hebrews and in James that if you see particularly a fellow believer in need, but possibly, and and by extension, other people around you in need, and you have a way to meet it, and you refuse to do that, there's a very real sense in which we may not understand God's love for us. Now, I have to be careful here, right? Because there are some people, perhaps even the majority of us, that are generous with what we have, and all of those sorts of things. I'm not saying sell your house, go live on the street, so that you can donate the money from the proceeds to help someone else. Because as we saw from the example of the early church, that has a finite limit to it, right? Eventually, you run out of the money, and then you're the one who needs the help. That happened in the history of the early church. That's why we have 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's why other churches had to help the church in Jerusalem. I'm not saying they did it wrong, I'm just saying, historically, here's where that leads. If we, you know, eventually Barnabas ran out of properties to sell. Eventually, all of the people in the early church, and they ended up having to go do something else. Did God provide for them? Yes. But the people who were originally doing all those things couldn't keep doing it. So I'm not necessarily arguing that we follow the pattern of the early church one for one, because we do see where that led. But at least the willingness and the attitude of the resources that I have our God's not mine. To the extent that I've bought into the lies of society that are very prevalent this time of year, where we say, make your list. Here is my list of demands, and if you don't get these for me, you don't love me. Right? That's what our world would say. And there are people that all of us probably know that will spend hundreds of dollars to fill a room for their kids with toys, to have an extravagant banquet, to whatever else, right? And it's easy for us to look at that and be like, I would never do that. I'm not that wasteful. I'm way more frugal than that, all of those sorts of things. But those attitudes still creep into our lives. Give me what I want, or it's not love. Approach me in this way, or it's not love. What is Jesus' definition of love here? Jesus' definition of love is, look at what I did, the way that I lived, how I served. That's your test of whether you actually know me, abide in me, and so on. Love for God is inextricably bound up with loving your neighbor in tangible ways. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us and offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do you show love through sacrificial service to those you claim as family in Jesus Christ and then broaden it out from there? Now, can any of us do the sacrifice of Jesus? No. God is not calling us to atone for anybody's sins or to die in exactly the way that Jesus did in order to follow in his footsteps. However, those in the early church saw it as a privilege to suffer for the sake of Jesus in the same way that Jesus did, and they were willing to give up, um, Paul says, of the Thessalonians, you were willing to share not only the things that you had, but your own lives with us. There is this aspect of sharing and fellowship that we saw last week. There is this aspect of sacrificial love and giving that we see illustrated in the early church. That even uh, the Macedonians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, out of their deep poverty are willing to give. And a lot of you Corinthians are a lot better off and you're not willing to follow through on the eagerness that you had last year when I came and visited you, you're going to let the Macedonians show you up? Or are you going to keep having all these arguments and pride and factions and splits and here's why I'm better than you because I know more things and do more things than you? Which, quite honestly, the American church has a lot of parallels with the Corinthian church, right? we got a lot of factions. This person's the best. That person is the best. The other person is the best. We have a lot of pride. I... I'm skilled at this, so I'm better than you. And we have a lot of sin that we rejoice in and say, well, it's fine because Jesus paid for it. We should be a lot less like the Corinthian church and a lot more like the Macedonian church that says, we have very little to nothing, but it belongs to God and we want to see how He's going to use it. We don't have to be first and foremost in everything. We don't have to argue about who's better. We're just all going to get involved doing things. And so, as we see these examples from the New Testament as tangible um, illustrations of the same sort of thing that Jesus was talking about, do you and I show love through sacrificial service to those that we claim as family in Jesus Christ? So, uh, we look at uh, John 13, and it's in the context of Jesus washing the disciples feet and Jesus serving them in various other ways. I think we should consider whether we need to do the specific act that Jesus did. But I think there's two directions we could go. One is we do the exact thing that the early church did or that the disciples did and we stop there. Or We see what they did and we say, all right, so where do we go from there in the way that Jesus wants us to live, right? Because there's a scenario where there can be a sort of spiritual pride creeps in. You know, there's a church that says, we have a foot washing service so we're automatically humble. We observe the Lord's table so we are right with God. We do baptism in the right mode so God is pleased with us. And all of the external rituals are happening, which parallels a lot like what happened with the Pharisees, but when they're not gathered together, they're like, forget the attitude of service. I'm going to make other people serve me. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. So I'm not saying the form is in itself always the problem. I'm saying when we become fixated on the form and don't go beyond it and say, all right, so how are all the other ways I'm supposed to demonstrate this before God? Um, I think this makes us nervous when we look at the Bible. Because if the Bible says chapter and verse blank, we feel like, I've got to do that. But the reality is, that was a command that was given to another church a long time ago. And so if we do it one for one, we're probably missing the point of what God wants us to do today. What I mean by that is that... God had a specific set of instructions for the Corinthian church, and the church at Ephesus, and the church at Philippi, and all these other churches. If we say, I'm not the church at Philippi, but I'm just going to take the instructions God gave to them, and just do it one for one, and then I'm do- done and good, I don't have to think about it anymore. There's probably an aspect of, of laziness and not fervently pursuing God that characterizes our relationship with God. Now, there are core principles there that are, that are the same, right? If you are connected with other people in the body of Christ, don't lie to each other. Like, that's very close to a core principle of that's something that we should do today, right? But I would argue um, if we say, well, this verse in Second or Third John says to show hospitality, and for them that meant this thing, and you know putting up their donkey and so i don't they don't have a donkey so i have to put it up so it's only like this really small thing i have to do to show hospitality today we're missing the point the point is saying what have god's people done to fulfill this command to love one another throughout history and what is the specific way god wants us to do that today and that takes some work that takes some thought that takes some diligence if i say i'm gonna love my neighbor by throwing a twenty dollar bill at him that might not be the way to love that person in that moment because maybe he's not being responsible with money and throwing money at the problem doesn't help him, and he comes right back the next day. Maybe money isn't the issue at all. Maybe he needs somebody to come alongside him because he's really discouraged. Like, there are ways to show sacrificial service to the people around us, but it takes thought, it takes diligence, it takes working through those things. Why is it important, though? Because in the final point, in verses 12 through 14, loving your brother shows the mature family relationship God is creating in his church. Loving your brother shows the mature family relationship God is creating in his church. John writes in verses 12 and 13 to little children. And I would argue, and I I didn't have this idea at first, but the more I read it, the more I think it's true, By this he means all the believers. We see in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you. Chapter 2, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And I know there's other examples um, throughout the book. Little children is kind of a a catch-all phrase to describe. Here's John, who's probably boarding on 90. Everybody else to him is pretty much little children, right? And that is true both in terms of age and in terms of the spiritual father kind of relationship he has with them. So what is true of little children? Your sins have been forgiven. You know the father. We see this in verses 12 and verse 13. And then he was writing and had written to fathers. We see this in verses 13 and 14. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. Who has been become who has been from the beginning. And verse 14, I have written to you fathers, because you know whom who has been from the beginning. There's two basic ideas about this. One is that it is a single group that John is writing to. Children equals fathers equals young men. Or that he is saying um, three different groups: children, young men, and fathers. And I just said why I don't think that's the one. But there is a possibility in which he's saying children in one sense, but then he's saying young men and fathers in terms of spiritual or actual age and maturity. What does he say to the fathers? You know him who has been from the beginning. He repeats it twice for sake of emphasis. But that's also what he says in verse 13 to children. And so I'm not sure that we should draw this really harsh line between all of these ideas. There is a reality in which... John makes us think, right? And so when he says children and fathers and young men, we want to put ourselves in one of those boxes, but there's a sense in which we also should realize that we should be in all of those boxes, right? All of these things should be true of God's people. And especially the ones that he writes to young men in verses 13 and 14, you have overcome the evil one. And then he says it again more fully in verse 14, you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And so to the extent that we say fathers, well, that's written to the people who are older. You know God, great, you're done, don't worry about it. But young men, you have to fight. You have to uh, oppose Satan. You have to have victory over him. Well, that's just for young men. That would be the wrong way to take this passage, right? But here's, I think, the thing that John is, is, is saying. In the same way that, um, that old men have, in this instance, um, and older believers, we could say more broadly, have come to know God the Father through long years of experience, there is also a necessity and expectation for those who are younger in the faith to be faithful as well. Like It's not something that waits until you get to be an older believer. It's not something that you say, well, I'm just going to mess around for the first 20 years of being a Christian and then I'll really follow God. Right? There is a scenario in which there is supposed to be a sharing of a rich and deep relationship with God from those who are older to younger. We see that in Titus 2. And there is supposed to be a fervency and a striving after God that is characteristic of younger believers that has not been lost by older believers either. So all of these things are to be true. That we have been forgiven. That we know the Father. That we overcome the evil one because we are strong and God's word abides in us. All of those things are supposed to be true of God's people, and John is just laying it out in this poetic kind of way and contrasting then versus now, what I've already said, what I'm saying now, different potential groups of people, but in the end, all of these things are supposed to be true of all of us. In much the same way that the characteristics that Paul lays out as requirements for pastors and deacons and women in the church are supposed to be true of everybody, whether or not you're actually fulfilling that role right in this moment. So bringing all those things together, let's work our way backwards. Are you maturing in your family relationship in the church before God and with others in the church? How will you know this? It will be seen in practical acts of sacrificial service in daily encounters with fellow believers. What will that show? That your claims of I know God and I abide in God are true and not mere words. It's really easy for us to evaluate the things that people say, either to blindly accept them or to dismiss them out of hand. And that applies when we're evaluating people to come to be a part of the church and thinking about ourselves and thinking about one another. We want to say, all right, so what has this person said? So they've given a testimony, they used all the right words, and they seem to know who God is, so they must be a Christian. Or conversely... They didn't say it quite the right way, so that person can't be a Christian. And John is saying even more fundamental than that, whether or not you can phrase the great doctrines of the faith 100% in the way that we would like them to be presented, is how do you live your life? Does the way that you live your life demonstrate sacrificial service? in the way that it was for Jesus because there are people who serve others sacrificially because they want to be noticed and that wasn't Jesus' motive at all and that shows that you don't really know God, right? But if your life is sacrificial, humble, service, the way that Jesus was, for the same motives that Jesus was to be pleasing to God the Father and to accomplish what is good for those around you, John says, alongside the test of your relationship with sin, this is an important and an essential test to know whether you actually are walking with God. Do I love my neighbor as myself? Loving your brother, loving your neighbor verifies your claim of obedient faith. Let's pray. Father. As we look at these truths. Hopefully we are convicted. I know that I was looking through them. I think it's easy. To, if I were to say it this way, there are definitely stretches of my life where I've evaluated how well I was doing before you based on how many things I knew and how many things I was talking about with other people. And it's easy to think what's going on in our hearts and then the day to day actions don't really matter. As long as we can say the right things and sort of, you know, fulfill the things that are expected of us, everything is great. And Lord, if our hearts are not in it, if we. Um, if we outwardly claim to serve, as the book of James says, but inwardly we're full of selfish ambition, don't we should not lie against the truth. Uh, if, as Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, they were doing all these things externally, but inward they were full of hatred. And we'll see that even as we get into the next section of 1 John. If we, if we hate our brother, if we uh, have such an abiding dislike and resentment, An attitude of malice that would lead even to the same sort of thing that Cain had, which is to even murder someone, how can we at the same moment curse those around us and bless you? How can we in the same moment say, we love you, God, but we hate these people you put right around us? Lord, help us to soberly and seriously examine our hearts in regards to that as we continue through uh, John's book. But help us to understand this point here, that It doesn't matter what we say. If our lives do not bear it out, if they are not characterized by sacrificial love and service of people around us, all the words in the world are a lie. Help us to genuinely and truly follow you and to walk in the example of Jesus. I know it's easy for us maybe to be suspicious of that and say, well, but but what about these truths? And we'll get to that later in the book of John. But I just think it's fascinating this is what you said. What's your what's our relationship to sin? Do we deal with it? Do we feel like it's okay? Do we try to cover it up? What's our relationship to the people around us? Do we have no use for them? Do we actively dislike them? Do we even hate them? Or do we sacrificially serve them as Jesus did? Lord, help us to seriously and soberly consider these things. Amen.